So we say yes, so we say yes. Is anybody out there saying yes to God? Bless you, Lord. We do bless you, God. We thank you so much for all that you're doing in these days. We thank you for salvation. We thank you, God, that you've laid hold of us. And we want to lay hold of you, God. We want to press in and understand all that you're doing, God, as much as we can, Lord, as much as you would allow. Yeah, God, I, and we just believe you for that. We ask you to pour your spirit out upon us to give us understanding and revelation. God, revelation uh, more than information, God. We thank you for the information, but we want, it in, we want a revelation in our spirits, God, so that we could be effective for you. God, in, uh, in, in glorifying you in these days. So we ask you to open your word to us. Thank you, God. Amen. Okay, so the technicals are there. Of course, we have new folk, and um, they're just, you know, bolding and underlining. A lot of it has to do with me because it's a verbal presentation. There's teeny type. The teeny type has to do with things that we will, um, it might be two or three verses in between the things that I'm focusing on, but for time's sake, because we have a lot, to, a lot of ground to cover, um, I make it teeny. And so I might not, I usually don't read teeny type, but you can read teeny type. Okay? So teeny type's a good thing. Okay, and if I then I read scriptures and other books and skip a verse or three or ten, it's not because I'm trying to solidify an opinion of mine or a doctrine and those verses don't agree with me. That's dangerous. That The idea of doing the shallow dive into Scripture, no matter where you are in Scripture, these are generalities in all of Bible reading, really, and especially teaching, the accountability of teaching. You, you don't want to sit there and think, if this doesn't agree with what I'm teaching, I'm not dealing with it. That's bad, bad, bad. Okay, so all that is, that's the red stuff, and then there's one more red thing this morning, and, you know, I am not about a demon behind every bush, but there is massive opposition to the book of Daniel. It is, there's a spiritual battle that goes on in the place of teaching of this book, study of this book, it's a battleground, we're going to see it in scripture. We'll see it in scripture right now. There's a lot of resistance, that's why I have asked for prayer, and some people have texted back or emailed back saying they will be praying for me. You don't have to do it now so I get all those emails, but seriously keep me in prayer. It is a battleground. And um, it's interesting because, it's interesting because there's, hi Vicky. Okay, Vicky, we're gonna, there you gotcha. Okay. <laughs> okay, and, uh, but here, here's Daniel 8. And now one of the things is we're gonna be Bouncing around, we are going to go consecutively, consistently through the book of Daniel. That's the way to teach. But I'm not going to not reach back into further sections of Daniel because there's points to make and things to confirm. So that's the way I teach and it works. Also in Daniel 13, we know that an angel speaks of demonic resistance. He said the prince of Persia resisted him and Michael the archangel had to assist. So there's a little bit of a peek into the the, the spiritual battle that's going on in the heavenly realms, a lot of it has to do with the book of Daniel, the prophecies, the truth. There's, a, there's been assaults on the book time and time again. Okay, so here, Daniel 8. Here's Daniel. Daniel has received two of his own visions by Daniel 8. And the second one is very profound and it's very weighty. And he sees these beasts, which we'll see an image of, an illustration of when we eventually get there. 
and the fourth beast is way weirder. All, all, all of them are terrifying, but the fourth one is way, way weirder. And he's nauseated. He's like, the words are like, whoa, what's that? He didn't even ask about the first three. So what's going on with that fourth guy? And the fourth guy, I believe, has to do with a, not a nation, but Islam, the Islam nation, which is not a geographical nation. But Daniel gets the vision of Daniel 8, and he says, and then he is told, and the vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future, which, by the way, we are the future. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. So he basically had to take sick leave, seriously. After what I arose and went about the king's business, I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. That's, I mean, for someone, one, I, I don't see any place in, the, in Scripture where someone says, I just got a vision from God and I flipped out and got sick. I couldn't even work. I mean, this, was, this is weighty stuff. Mm -hmm. It's here for a reason. And we know that, we, you know, we know that the Bible's booby-trapped. I've said it many times where God will literally set it up that if you, want, if you come in with an agenda, you're going you're to burn your hand, you're going to stub your foot. It's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. So we want to tremble at the word, like we're told in, in the book of Isaiah in the 60s. And God says, those are the people I look at. My eyes are, I mean, he sees everybody, but his eyes are upon the ones who literally tremble at the word. That's taking it seriously. And the word offends our flesh. It offends, it offends logic. It offends intellect. And it has to be read literally with spiritual eyes, which is why a veil is over, the, is over the Jewish people to this day, but the veil is taken away in Christ. <clears throat> I heard something this week on a website that is uh, owned by a very, very wonderful man who has great insight and all that, but he's a Jewish man, and he's very moral, and he's very ethical, and he's very righteous, but he doesn't know the Lord. And seriously, if my name was on a website and someone taught that, it wouldn't be there. But it was all about, hey, man, aren't you happy we have flush toilets now and air conditioning? Look at all the things that are improving on Earth. I'm thinking, that is not the storyline. That's like, that's like painting the chairs on the Titanic. I mean, I mean, the world's going in a certain direction. It gets better. The good news is, the good news is Jesus is coming back. It's going to get beyond imaginably better. It's going to be great, but we have a season that we're heading into. It's clear by all that's going on on earth right now, the, the anxiety levels, the suicide rates, the crime going up, the nations raging. That stuff will increase, but we have to lock our eyes on the one who wins, and we win along with them. So I don't pretend, again, to know it all or understand it all, um, but I've studied this book a ton because God's brought me into it, and I love this book. In, in, in listening to it, because I listen to it on so many of my bike rides, and listening to it, I think, oh my goodness, i got to study that again. Oh my goodness, i got to study that again. Oh, I have to sharpen that sword again, because it just dulls out. So there's things that I'm I could teach today, and there's things that I could not teach in the book of Daniel today. I have to go back to my own notes, some of the other sources. But. So the, bo the book of Daniel is historic and prophetic. It involves a man, a nation, and a great God who is the only God who is our God. It's critical for us to understand the model of the man because individually we're all going to stand before the Lord. You're going to answer for not my husband taught me, my wife did this, my pastor, my church, my denomination. That's what I was brought up in. I'm so sorry. Eventually we're going to stand before God, and the accountability is you. It's one-on-one. -on -one. 
And so there's definitely not to miss is the man Daniel. It can't be overemphasized, and I will overemphasize it. I'm going to try my best because I'm stunned by who the man is. And his life is the perfect live out of these scriptures. And this is a very tough psalm, Psalm 50. The rest of it is a blistering rebuke on unthankfulness and corruption and unholiness and an assumption that because God didn't judge people immediately, they were good to go. So it's a very tough psalm, but in the middle of it are two of the most amazing promises you'll find in all of scripture. Verses 14 and 15, offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Remember when they threw um, Jonah over the boat, over the side of the boat, and the waters calmed, and all these guys had all their weird gods, and they started taking vows to God. People get saved, they have a radical God experience. People, them out of their mouth comes, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll do this, and so pay your vows to the Most High. And then he says, even in the place of a thankful heart, and even in the place of fulfilling your vows, I will even bring trouble into your life because I want you to be the troubler. I want you to learn in faith through my rescue and deliverance, but also like Elijah, you're going to be a troubler to this world. This world will see you as trouble. They, they will see you as trouble. Oh, yes. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. And then in verse 23, it says, whoever offers praise glorifies me, and to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. That is spectacular. Recently, I was uh, reading where it says that God basically, um, wrath is basically reserved for his enemies. People of God never suffer wrath. Never suffer his wrath. They've been martyred, but they don't suffer the wrath of God. But he's basically saying, order your conduct aright. By grace, you can order your conduct aright. We'll never be perfect. He's perfect. Critical is the nation of Israel, the covenant nation. You know, we understand that God is absolutely, um, he honors covenant. We probably won't, we're not going to get to it this morning. I think next week we'll get to Daniel 9. I, wanted, I thought I was going to start Daniel the book of Daniel by going to nine and going back to one. We will get to one this morning. But uh, in Daniel 9, in the prayer of repentance, Daniel says, basically, you're righteous. And because the covenant is holy and you embrace covenant, you are dealing with us according to the covenant. So again, you can read Deuteronomy 27, 31 and see what he's, what he's, what he's addressing right there. And I remind you again, 1620, Bois de Mayflower, our forefathers made covenant. And this, is, this nation has all of the characteristics of a covenant nation. Blessed, resources, uh, savior of the world many, many times, imperfect, uh, proclaiming the name of God, but really not serving him the way they should. That's the way it's supposed to be, by the way, but Israel modeled that in the Old Testament. But this nation has, and, and now we're being, or the corrections that we are facing as a nation from weather to resources to economy to, to people at our borders to all these threats to everything else. It's, read Amos 3 and 4. I was talking to a dear Jewish friend this week, and he brought up the weather and God because we've had some strong conversations in the past. And I was going to send him Amos 3 and 4 because I thought, I don't know if he has a Bible even, but I thought, I was reading it earlier this morning, and I thought, no, I'm going to have to send it as a teaching. 
because he's not going to understand some of the parallels and some of the analogies. But this, the nation of Israel, this thing is about Israel. We're going to see something pretty cool, in fact, about the book of Daniel written in two languages. It's actually it's the only book in Scripture that's written in two different languages. It's crazy. It's wild. And the other nations, of course, of course, we know there's an ongoing and increasing rage. It's a story throughout the whole book that the nations rage. We can see, you can read it in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 basically points to the culmination of this age when the Lord returns and addresses the raging nations and addresses the ones who have not, in essence, embraced the Savior. The terminology in Psalm 2 is kissing the sun. He says, so be careful there. And, of course, it's all about God. It starts there, the middle's about him, the end, he's the road, and he's the destination. He's the shepherd, he's the king. He's our savior, he's our brother in some ways, in that he lived as a man on earth, but it's all about God and his son and the Holy Spirit. And this book is stunning about that, so we never want to miss that. Never want to do it. You know, the other thing is God himself, the spirit of God, is a teaching spirit. God wants to bring us in. We never get to the bottom of this, which is... I love that. You know, when you sort of think, I read it countless times. We have a friend who's a reader, a professional reader. Uh, this is a person who is involved um, in publishing, she, a vice president of major publishing firms. And one time she said to me, I've read the Bible. I thought, oh, can't tell you anything. <laughs> it's not that kind of book. It's not a one and done on this book. This is our, this is our, our lifeblood. And so the way the Lord sets it up is he, he wants to reward those who are intent on studying his word. So I encourage you there. And I believe God is purposely cloaked and hidden certain things and often speaks in mysteries and definitely chooses when he wants a mystery or a question solved. That's up to him. So we poke in and probe and we can give opinions. In fact, my, you know, the website, EC3728, it says one man's opinion. It's my prayerful opinion of what I believe the word says and I've told people I said I haven't had to adjust my theology the last 20 25 years as things have heated up on earth and and just by God's grace I've pretty much you know I'm dialing things in but it, anyway look at Ephesians 3 verse 9 through 10 and of course we're in the middle of a sentence here just for time's sake Paul is talking about his journey his journey from a Jewish rabbi persecuting Christians, thinking they were blaspheming, to filled with the Holy Spirit and 17, spending 17 years pretty much in a solitary kind of dialogue with God, processing what he knew as a Jew, and then what he experienced on the Damascus Road, and I'm sure asking lots and lots of questions. He says, here's what I was called to do, to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which is what we're walking in which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent. The intent of the mystery and the intent of my ministry is that now, so he gives you the when. This is 2,000 years ago. He's saying now the manifold wisdom, now this unbelievable, multifaceted, almost incomprehensible wisdom of God might be made known by who? by the church, not even just by individual saints, by the way. He's talking about a cohesive, uh, we attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ as each part does its share, as the church presses in, might be made known, made known by the church, proclaimed, lived out, preached, sung, all those things, loved to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. That 
stuns me, that scripture, because we always think everybody who's in the other world, everybody who's in the spirit realm knows more than we do. Apparently not. Because in Hebrews, God says to, through the writer, he never called anybody else son. He never called the angels son. So the angels are up there wowing it when you're on your knees praying and God shows you something and then you're speaking it for it or we're living it out. That's stunning. Yeah. That is humbling, but also makes you feel good. You think, oh, cool. You know, I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of God. So that's huge, okay? So also I want to say, be careful to jumping to eschatological um, conclusions based on your lens. If something's clear, it's clear. But the things that aren't clear, and there are these three guys from, I want to say the, I think the 1800s, not the 1700s, I think it's the 1800s. Their names were Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. I love these guys. They had an amazing, they had a funny little relationship, the three of them together. They went through the whole Bible. There's lots of things they say that I don't agree with. There's way, way, way more that have overwhelmed me, and I have been ministered to mightily by their teachings. But you weigh everybody's teaching, including mine, against Scripture. You want, to waste, you want to weigh the teaching against Scripture. Listen to what they said. 18 lens. They had an 1800 lens. So there was something speculative in Scripture, which is not yet clear. It's Daniel 8, which is one of the visions. That's the one Daniel got sick over and had to take time off. It was weighty stuff. So listen to what they say in the 1800s. The event, however, may, in the case of Antichrist, show a correspondence between the days here given in Daniel 9.27, such as is not yet discernible. So that's 1800s English saying we don't really know exactly, not yet, but it will be. So they understand that. They're praying sober, brilliant men. The term of 2300 days cannot refer 2300 years of the treading down of Christianity by Mohammedism. Mohammedanism, which is Islam, they used to refer to it as that, as this would leave the greater portion of the time yet future. So they're understanding the tick, 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 that it hadn't happened yet, and they're thinking, well, it can't be Islam, even though it might be Islam, but Mohammedism is fast waning. So the season in which they were living, Mohammedism, Mohammedanism was waning. It was sort of like on the decrease, and so their conclusion was, in the future, it'll never revive again. Talk about the head wound. Talk about the head wound. Talk about the restoration. We're going to see they nailed it, but they didn't give themselves credit because they were stuck in an 1800s lens. Let's not get stuck in a 2023 lens. Safety. It's massive safety. Isn't that crazy? I love that. I think the same thing goes along with here is wisdom in the book of Revelation. The, you know, the number of the Antichrist is 666, and people have sold books and made money and sold T-shirts. I think the wisdom is don't speculate until later. We're speculating now, thinking it's this guy, it's that guy. People thought it was Hitler. People thought it was... Every, everybody wants to do uh, alphabet math and come up with who the bad guy is, and then the bad guy dies. And then they think, okay, he's not on the list anymore. We've got to go look for a new guy whose numbers can be, you know, shuffled into a six. Just the wisdom is just, we'll see. We'll know when we get there. What a relief that is, first of all, because you don't have to be the Bible answer man. <laughs> so we're going to do well to understand all things prophesied in the book and other books of Scripture may not yet be fully revealed, even in 2023. There's things revealed now that weren't revealed 10, 12 years ago when I started teaching this book. 
There's things now that make more sense now. It, it fits together better now. When I listened to the book, I didn't even realize I taught the book the beginning of last year. Something I have, like notes from like that, or 2021, late 2021. But it's just, it, stir, it stirs me, this book now. And I've been, I've probably listened to it 20 times this year. And, you know, having read it too. Just because something right now might not look theologically logical due to current events does not mean it won't end up surprising us with, with surprising accuracy. This is so funny because we're going to read later. There's a guy named Zach Pentecost, and he's a, a commentator on scripture. And he said, not Zach, someone else, Pentecost. Isn't it less than was Pentecost? Dwight Pentecost. But it's interesting, though, because... Um, he says something, I thought, well, I don't know about that. I don't know about it. Well, we're going to see when, it, when we get there. So many feel, other than the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel provides the clearest picture of the end times of this age, which I believe is quickly coming upon us. And I agree, along with a massive respect for Zephaniah, Zechariah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and the New Testament writings, they all perfectly align. The story is actually pretty clear. And here it is in a nutshell. It's going to get worse. It's going to get crazy. The nations are going to sell out. A lot of the church is going to compromise. The church is functionally going to split and it will be represented by two women, which is the bride of Christ and a harlot. The concept of harlotry is not necessarily sexual. It's a big deal, but it's not the storyline. The storyline of, of prostitution is saying, I will compromise my ethics and my morals to gain something. That's prostitution. People do it all the time in business. Do it every day. A lot of the things, that, a lot of the judgments on the world is people take bribes. Judges take bribes. Kings take bribes. People want soothsayers. They want people who are going to say things that make them feel good. They don't want to hear truth. Our goal is not to... Um, simply be angry at the world, but the goal is, is to speak the truth as you're told by the Spirit at the right time. And we go back to Ecclesiastes 3, time for every purpose. Sometimes it's time to be silent. it, it got to be, you know, don't sit there and say, oh, I'm, I'm just going to be silent and trust God. No, you be obedient and trust God. He tells you to speak, you speak. tells you to be silent, you be silent. The book is perfect. We know that. Nebuchadnezzar's statue dream in chapter 2, which we will get to next week, I think, is often referred to as the mother of all prophecies because it's interesting because the particular world governments that God has chosen to link together for his eschatological purposes is interesting because people are always saying, that most, and I was raised Jewish, and so I was never taught the book, I, I should have been taught the book of Daniel, but I was never taught the book of Daniel. But, but the storyline, mostly in the church, is Rome. It's a revived Roman Empire, and the Antichrist comes out of that. And we're going to see that that's really not the case, even historically. That's an eagle, easy Google. Not necessarily Googling scripture, but Googling history. That the Romans were stretched so thin that they would hire partisans, they'd hire people who oftentimes who already had a hatred for the people they were trying to dominate and they would pay them to go in and do dirty work. They hired the Syrians to go in and destroy the temple. The Romans were there paying the Syrians to go in and destroy the temple. That's the early hatred. That's the early hatred. It all fits. We're going to see that it fits. So when a praying saint gets an understanding of God's sovereignty and divine plan, one is what it does is it solidifies your commitment to live holy. That God's in charge. 
Nothing just happens. Little birdies don't fall to the ground without God knowing it. You're way more important than that. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints with Psalm 116. God doesn't spend us like pennies. A lot of times when people compromise, it's out of a panic for survival. I'll do anything to survive. What, how, how many times do you hear people say, it's all about family, it's all about success, he who dies with the most toys wins. They're all lies. They're delusions. And the storyline has to be the great commandment is you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It makes you a better father, makes you a better businessman, makes you a better husband, makes you a better neighbor. But it has to flow from that. And when the Lord says that through Haggai, I'm going to basically take down everything, everything of man, which is the, the Haggai 2 is the punchline for the book of Hebrews in 12, telling us, I'm going to shake everything that can, that can be shaken so that what cannot be shaken will remain. That wants to be you. <laughs> you, want, you want to be legit. You want to be kosher. Okay, at the conclusion of this age, not perfect, he's perfect. But you just say, God, I just, want to, I just want to make it, I just want this to work. So look what Peter says here. After he speaks of the violent return of Jesus, 2 Peter 3, 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. It's going to, it's going to, be, an, uh, it's going to be unexpected by most in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. Well, suddenly it's not going to be secret. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. It is a visibility and destruction. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, he has a question. He says, how should you be living? If you know that, do you want to bet on this place? Does it matter all that much? Or what matters? We're told we're blessed to have a, an attitude of pilgrimage, and we want to have an attitude of platform and planting. I want to be, I want this, oh, mm, uh, uh, and you want to leave your lands to your, yeah, and, and it's good. I mean, if you have an inheritance, leave it to me if you want. But I'm just saying, that's not the plan. The real plan is we're on a pilgrimage. We're heading to something that, when we read this kind of stuff, it imparts in your spirit an understanding of eternity and future. You think, I want to, that's what counts. And so the Lord, in his greatness, will test us in that. Like, what counts in your life? And he'll test us often. Good news, of course, good news is that um, it, things end on a massive high note. Great ending. It's a great conclusion. So this sets the book up to be profoundly regarded and also to be, also to be vehemently opposed and accused. Because Satan hates scripture and he hates Daniel because it lays out the battle plan of God. And the spirit work behind the book of Daniel actually imparts a revelation into the saints, which I love. So I want to spend a little bit of time talking about um, some of the critics, which is sort of interesting. You can tell people, oh, I'm studying the book of Daniel, and they look at you like, oh, the, you know, the furnace, oh, you know, the, you know, oh, oh the statue, oh, what's the other one? The lion's den. The lion's den? You think, yes, and more. Yes, and more, because the book is laid out. It was critical, even in the time of Jesus. They were in red alert, because they, they knew the 70-week the prophecy of Daniel. They were on red alert. And there's things that they didn't know that the saints of the First Testament didn't know that we know. So this is what John Walvoord says. <clears throat> he goes, critics have long questioned the historicity of Daniel. Is it legit? They challenged Daniel's reference to the accession of Darius because there was no historical evidence outside the Bible for his reign. However, 
Several explanations are possible. Now you think, other than really, uh, what about the evidence of a resurrected Jesus? What did they do with that? I mean, there's no photographs of that. There's, I mean, seriously? There's, there's no evidence. There's a lot of things that we have yet to uncover. Some of those things we might not uncover, but then you think, who testified to the book of Daniel? It was the guy who saved your soul. <laughs> it was Jesus. Came out of his mouth, he keeps talking about Daniel. However, several explanations, so, so Wolver is looking for explanations. Darius may have been another name for Cyrus, I highly doubt it. Daniel 6.28 may be translated, so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, even the reign of Cyrus the Persian. It was common for ancient rulers to use different names in various parts of their realms. True. Thus, Darius may have been a localized name for Cyrus, maybe. The second explanation is that Darius was appointed by Cyrus to rule over Babylon, a comparatively small portion of the vast Medo-Persian Empire. Things shifted time and again, and some of the prophets used ancient names to describe empires that were named something else. So it's not fully clear to us. Yesterday, we had a friend here from Israel, and we were talking about Poland and Lithuania and where the city of Vilna is. My family was from Vilna. And depending upon the week, it's either Lithuania or Poland, because borders shift and swell. You know, America, our border's down right now, but for the most part, we know we have water on two sides. We have those folks, the Canadians up north, and then we have what's happening down south. But, but some of our, the borders are set as far as the oceans go. But when you're landlocked, and you're in a place of especially uh, geopolitical activity like this, those borders are moving by the minute. They're shifting. In Israel, if somebody would move out of a house in, in East Jerusalem, that whoever they were, their border just expanded one apartment. So it could be Muslims or it could be Jews. And people living right there at the edge. I mean, we were at a prayer meeting one time. We heard gunfire. There's stuff happening on those borders. There's a conflict happening. So then he goes on. He says... This, this suggests that he ruled by appointment rather than by conquest and thus would have been subordinate to Cyrus who appointed him. The historical situation led to this appointment based on the Nabonidus Chronicle was that Babylon was conquered by Ugbaru, whose name did not travel forward, governor of Agudium, who entered the city of Babylon the night of Belshazzar's feast. It's very interesting. So there's speculation, there's historical speculation, and things just tell If you read newspapers or online sources now, they're still digging and finding. They have found things now. When, when Israel became a nation, and they found the Dead Sea Scrolls when that little Bedouin boy threw a rock in a cave in Qumran, suddenly a lot of the arguments about the validity of the book of Isaiah stopped. People were screaming and raging about the book of Isaiah until a kid throws a rock and breaks a clay pot. Suddenly everything makes sense. Suddenly they translate the book of Isaiah, the, the ancient parchments, and it was off by one, what was it? Those, I think there was holy, holy, holy instead of holy, holy. Yeah, one of, one, of the, one of the parchments said holy, holy, holy in one spot, and in another, and in another parchment like was like, you know, or thousands of years later writing, there were two holies, and one holy fell off or something. God's able to keep his word intact. Yeah. 
So one by someone very interesting is this total loser accuser. His name was Porphyry, and I've told you before. He threw his main strength against the book of Daniel, recognizing that if this pillar of faith be shaken, the whole structure of prophecy must tremble. If the writer was not Daniel, then he, Jesus, had lied on a frightful scale, ascribing to God prophecies which were never uttered. Somehow I don't think so. The night I got saved and off my drugs, it was Jesus who saved my soul. It wasn't Porphyry. The one we worship, the one whose presence we feel when we lift holy hands without wrath and doubting, is Jesus. He's not a liar. Jesus is the truth. So this guy literally had an agenda. He had an agenda to try to basically dismantle Christianity. I don't think it went well for him. I don't think we're going to run into Porphyry on the other side. Maybe, who knows, God's merciful sometimes and has a tendency to lean on people. Looking at Matthew 24, which we looked at last week, but we're going to look at again. I want to see it in a little bit of, so you can see the time frame here. They were asking him about a destruction of a temple. We know this is before 70 AD when the temple came down, that temple. But here's what Jesus is not simply looking forward 40 some odd years prior, you know, ahead of when he's talking. He says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads the book that is legit, let him understand. He's, he's basically saying that it's totally legit. And then he goes on to verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be, which is a quote of Daniel 12, 1, then goes on in 27, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Verse 29, we get the amazing Greek word euthios, which means immediately, forthwith, not delay, at that time. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then, then, at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the tribes will mourn. The tribes will mourn, the saints will be high-fiving. The saints will be high-fiving. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, so we know it's loud. That's the Corinthian story, the last trump, the trump sounds. He comes back. This whole thing is going to shift instantly. There's going to be lots of Jewish salvation at this time. God's going to really do a work in the Jewish people. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of, hand, one end of heaven to the other. So that's what he's talking about when he's talking about the book of Daniel and the thing that's so abominable, it'll cause a desolation in the temple. This is all yet to come. Stay tuned. <clears throat> Daniel is spoken about by God himself via the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel 14, 14. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. Everybody's standing on their own. Everybody's standing on their own. So God sends prophets, sends teachers, sends evangelists, sends, people, sends the church, sends, sends his people out to speak to the world. Like Paul said, to warn every man. But that's not going to convert every man because every man has to have a free will. Otherwise, they can never make a choice to love him. Ezekiel 38, uh, 28. 
God via Ezekiel is condemning Satan via condemning the king of Tyre as a prophetic model of Satan. And listen to what he says here. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up. And you say, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods in the midst of the seas. Yet you're a man and not a God. Though you set your heart as a heart of a God, behold, you are wiser than Daniel. He uses Daniel as not just holy, but wise. He says, this guy has the goods. And we know that the beginning of wisdom, we know where that is. It's the fear of the Lord. So we begin a study about a much validated, politically, biblically confirmed young Jewish man who lives his life in front of the bright light of the written word. And he's about 16, could be a little older, a little younger. I would tend to think maybe a little younger. When he gets taken out of Jerusalem as a captive, he lives his entire life in a foreign country. He lives to be an old age. He's referred to as Na'ar, which is an older boy, like Samuel in the temple living with the, with the man of God, sort of, Eli, and like young Zechariah, who received powerful visions. They were all referred to as Na'ars. So it's sort of, it's prepubescent, it's not a newborn. We had that discussion with our Israeli friend yesterday, those are yeleds, those are ones who have been birthed, it's the younger kid. But when the word in Hebrew is na'ar, he's, he's been weaned, he's, he's way beyond weaned. So he's a young man. He was born in the royal family, noble birth, we're going to see that. And he lived there at least until the third year of Cyrus, which was 536 BC, therefore he was, um, he was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar uh, around 605. If he were 16 when captured, he was 85 when Cyrus was reigning. So the guy had a long life. Again, hope he continued to floss. Seriously, I mean, take care of yourself. You don't know how long you're going to be here. And you don't want your body getting in the way of serving God. I can't get on a plane. I can't think. I can't read. I can't speak anymore. You, you owe God your body. Glorify God in your body. Do what you can to. He, Paul said, body exercise, bodily exercise profits a little. Does profit a little. Godliness is the answer, but bodily exercise is a good thing. I remember different times in our lives. I had a, a, a what was that? You know, in Hawaii, I had an accident. We were wave. What were we doing? Wave surfing, sort of. Body surfing. Yeah, body surfing. And I was hurting. So body surfing. It was without a surfboard. I knew we were doing something without a surfboard. I never stood up on a surfboard. But 47 years in California, I never stood up on a surfboard. But I was in so much pain for about six or eight months, I could barely sit on an airplane. Yeah. It was horrible. I mean, just do what you can. Take care of your body, please. And I believe some of the things that God allows us to suffer now is to remind us, please take care of your body. It's yours. Okay. Here he is, J. Dwight Pentecost. This is cool. It's the priority of Israel and the, and the people. And this has to do with the book of Daniel. Daniel is a, unusual in that it's written in two languages. Uh, chapter 1, um, all the way to 2-4, the first half of that verse, are in Hebrew, and the rest of the book is in Aramaic. It was the spoken language of the prophet's day. Hebrew was the language of God's covenant people. Israel, Aramaic, was the language of the, much of the Gentile world. Though the book of Daniel is a single literary work and has two major emphasis. One has to do with God's program for the Gentile nations. This is not in priority. It's actually the priority is Israel. It's his, he calls it Israel, the Jews, the apple of his eye, stubborn, obstinate, opinionated. And God says, I'll, I'm gonna, I'll go get him. I'm going to get them. There'll be a remnant. They'll be saved. I've always had one. 
But one has to do with God's program for the Gentile nations, hence the prophet used Aramaic. The second major emphasis is on, the na is on the nation Israel and the influence or effect of the Gentiles on Israel. Also, the influence or effect that Israel was supposed to have on the Gentile nations, and I refer you back to the last verses of Ezekiel 39 to see the failure of Israel, which, quite frankly, has been the failure of the church. We've presented a powerless gospel and a compromised gospel, exactly what Israel did. Look what Daniel himself tells us. I love this. Proclaiming this, uh, he says, this to God himself after the dream revelation of chapter 2. This is a revelation that Daniel himself received in his own dream. Don't overlook dreams. If you have dreams, I, I, I write my dreams down. Most of them have spiritual connotation to them. Some of them I never know. I read them occasionally again but I, I try to be obedient and, and write down my dreams. I have hundreds of dreams written down. Much has happened in scripture in the dream state. Your TV is off, you're not looking at your phone, you're not reading a book, you're not talking to other people, it's you and God. Spectacular. Daniel 2, verse 19 through 21. So Daniel, he had a dream, and in that dream, a dream is revealed to him. And that dream saved not only his life, but the life of a whole lot of bogus false prophets and seers who had made a, an industry out of pretending they were spiritual. Then the seeker was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel, first thing Daniel did was not run to, to stop the hand of the execution of the prophets. First thing Daniel does, so Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, and the word answered again, if you're new to these teachings, the word answer doesn't necessarily mean someone said something to him. It means he's responding to a situation or a question. Daniel, <coughs> blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Is that cool? All this has been warred against by Satan. Satan says he's in charge. People sell out to him thinking, I can gain priority or status or recognition or promotion by serving Satan. He's a liar and there's no truth in him. That's what Jesus told us. Daniel 2.44, uh, second chapter, verse 44. In, these, in the days of these kings of God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. It shall stand forever. That's the sovereignty of God that Daniel knew. And later in, in 4, it says something which is important for us. God later dealt heavily with Nebuchadnezzar because the king had refused to learn. This tells you something about correction, and it says that it's profitable to those who receive instruction by the correction. It says that in the book of Hebrews. If you refuse correction and refuse to receive the instruction, the scripture says you, you're in jeopardy of getting destroyed. So you could, you know, you could blow it off if you want, but it's not to your benefit. And he says, this decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know. That means us. So we're reading this, so we understand this too. What does he want us to know? That the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. He gives it to whomever he will. 
and sets over it the lowest of men. He can do whatever he wants. And a lot of the lies, a lot of the political nonsense, and some of the people getting set up right now, some of the people in government right now, they're massively disqualified and they think they earned it. Or they say, I'll kill people to stay in power. And all of this stuff that we see happening on earth right now is directly in opposition to this truth, that God's the one who does it. And this is why we have to be very careful that we don't get caught up in, I believe that we, we should vote, I believe that we should understand the issues that are going on, but we have to be very careful that we serve a king and we don't serve a political party. And a lot of the disappointments which we're hearing, again, we had a conversation with someone recently, they were, they're from another country, they were sitting here a year ago, and the, uh, the wife was crying over the, the, what's happening in their country, and the, she, she loved the government, and she wanted it to work out so well, and she was starting to realize there's corruption and compromise and all that, and I've been saying it, is that God is weaning his praying people off of nationalism. He's purposely doing it. It's very disappointing. Because you want your country to be blessed. And it's a blessing because we're here, but the church better be the salt. It comes down to the church. If the church isn't preaching timely truth, the church is missing their call on earth in these days. This is why we have to know these things, because this is truth. I, I love the what time is it thing. You know I'm sort of obsessed with time. I've spoken about it and taught on it. But it has to do with what is happening now. And we, we're, we're the ones responsible. We want people to understand what's happening right now and who's sovereign in all this. Because when the compromises start really getting weighty and you're not going to be able to buy and sell unless you have a, take the mark of Satan, a lot of people are going to say, you know what? i gotta, I got to live. i got to do something here. And we would say, well, where does my help come from? Haggai 2. Speak to Zerubbabel, verse 21, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kings. That's yet to happen. He has done that in the past, but this scripture, when you read Haggai 2, it's all about people coming to salvation through a troubled world. So we try to fix the trouble. We think, oh, we, if we do this, we'll legislate that, we'll do that, we'll do this, I'll move here, it works better. The reality is, God, what do you want in my life? It comes down to your will be done. And, and that requires not simply Bible knowledge, but it requires a prayer life. What do you want, God? Where do you want me? Don't move someplace unless God tells you to move. He speaks really clearly. He's really good at that. Here's, some of the, uh, here's a prophetic psalmist. I love this. Psalm 75, verse 6. For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. How clear is that? What are you going to do to fight against that? How are you going to manipulate that? We've seen it over and over again. And, and our system in America is very interesting in a way because we vote and people come in and they're like, you know, this guy's better looking and this guy's this and this one's more articulate and that race has never been president. So do we need one because we want to fill things out and make us look like kumbaya? You think, God, what are you doing? That's what, we, need to, we need to be prayerful. I always say, I vote for the least blasphemous party. I'm trying to not provoke God to anger. I, neither party is holy. There's holy people. There might be holy people in both parties. It doesn't mean the party's holy. Okay. <clears throat> so, this sovereign authority of God continues to be challenged throughout history. It started off being challenged. The first lie took place in the Garden of Eden. The first lie, the first fake news was the Garden of Eden. 
first first news out of the mouth of anyone really, other than God and and, and Adam naming the animals, was a lie. It's a lie. Daniel seven talks about the conclusion of the age. It's going to culminate in the greatest rebellion of man. It will be at the end of the age. It's going to culminate, just like a big drama movie. We have to anticipate that. We're not going to change that. Daniel 7, he's talking about the Antichrist. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High, shall intend to change times and law. We already saw who puts the times in place. We already saw that. He, sh he, he shall persecute the saints. He shall intend to change times and laws. Then the saints shall be given into his hand. You think, what? It says it right here. For a time and times and half a time. That's cryptic, but it's not that cryptic. It's talking three and a half years here. So these are some of the lies. Okay, gender. Is a the whole thing, what's going on right now. Read Jonathan Kahn's Return of the Gods. What's happening on earth right now is exactly what happened in the past. Some of the demons, some of the mythological characters, they were, they were cross-sexual, they were transgender. They, they, we basically, the, the, you know, when Jesus came, he basically cleared the atmosphere. He evicted demons that we've welcomed back because we've left the house empty. That verse, which is startling, that says, you know, it talks about, oh, the unclean spirit goes out of a man. The model in that verse is a man. The last phrase in that verse is, so shall it be with this generation. So Jesus used a man model to explain a world problem at the conclusion of the age. We've basically, because the church has so busy not wanting to offend by telling truth, and the synagogue doesn't even want their savior, and 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 we got an issue going on. And so the truth has to be known, and when it's not known, demons come back. And that's why we're here to be praying in these days. Because we can affect things. What did we read in Ephesians? That the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by who? By angelic creatures? No, by us. We don't even have an idea what happens when we pray. We have no idea. Sometimes you sit there and think, oh, I've been praying in tongues 20 minutes and I can feel the power of God, so it has to be effective. The answer is yes, but the story is not you feeling like you were effective. The fact is something's happening in the spiritual realms when you're praying. And we have to remember that. Something happens in the spiritual realm when you pray. Your prayers count. I know, I love that. I love it. I have to remind myself that. Gender. Genesis 5.2, he created them male and female. Anything else is a lie. Want to live a lie? Want to compromise and condescend to a lie? It's a lie. How about the ownership lie? Matthew 4.8, Jesus is having a wrestling match with the devil. The devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. One is it tells you about the power of worship, which is another reason why you want to be worshiping. One of many reasons. If you'll worship me, now Jesus said, there's, there's no truth in him. There's no truth in Satan. And people want to quote this and say, look, he has all this power. We've, we've turned things over to him by the fall of man. We know that. And we've been paying that price heavily. But that's not his storyline. Daniel, who Jesus affirms, gave us a storyline. 
about who sets kings up and who puts them down. Psalm ownership truth, Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. Who owns it? The world and those who dwell therein. He owns all of it. Why? Because he owns the eternal patent rights. Non-expiring patent rights. For he's founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. So it's his. That's truth. Okay, so brief historical background here. Oh, we're making good time. This is good. This is J. Dwight Pentecost again. In 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar led Babylon again. Now remember where Israel is, okay? So we have nations above them, and we have nations to the side of them, and we have nations below them. The ones below them are in Africa, and they're over in, the, in what's referred to as the, the Middle East. The ones to the side of them, the ones to the east, are, are, are the Middle Eastern nations. And then they, they can go all the way up into Russia, and they go into, you know, you go, you go in that direction there. He says, so those nations were constantly at war with each other, and many times they said that Israel was sort of like a, it's like a swinging door. The nations would, God would use these nations to discipline Israel per his promise to David and Solomon, saying, I'll correct you with the rod of man. So a lot of times these nations didn't even know God was using them. Other times they did. They actually knew it was a sovereign God. By the way, Micah 6 validates Balaam as a legit prophet when he falls down with his eyes open in, in uh, the book of Numbers. I mean, I love, I love the storyline, who God uses and when he employs them and how he works. And he, you know, he says, you know, he, he exalts his word above his name. Even if you think, oh, if that's God, that can't be, this isn't right, that contradicts that. He goes, this is my word, I honor it. That's what we want to do. And because it actually, the word honors his name. When you understand it, when you're ignorant or arrogant, then the word seems to contradict the personality of God, but it's not true. But what happens is, is that God is using these nations. And so a lot of times, uh, like with um, Ahaz or Asa, might have been Asa, a lot of times a king will like compromise and he'll try to do a deal with someone else's ally to come against them and pay them to do, and they're, they're constantly, the Jewish kings were trying to manipulate and God's trying to remind the Jewish kings through the prophets that I'm your deliverer. This is why he wants people to celebrate Passover because that was impossible for 400 years of bondage to, to end with the supernatural deliverance, which is why he wants church to celebrate it. So when it gets more impossible here, we say, wait, we serve the God who parted the Red Sea. It's not logical. It's just not logical. But he says, I want you to do these things for your benefit. So anyway, so here's what happens. In 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar led Babylon against Egypt. So the northern country is leading his country down south to fight Egypt. They usually ended up going through Israel. They sort of used it as a supply depot. They ravaged the people. They took their crops. They took their sheep. They took their whatever kind of weaponry. They took whatever they wanted. They ravaged Israel. Egypt was defeated and Karshemish was destroyed by the Babylonians in May-June of that year. While pursuing the defeated Egyptians south, Nebuchadnezzar expanded his territorial conquest southward into Syria and toward Palestine. Learning of the death of his father, Nabopolassar, which we'll discuss later, Nebuchadnezzar returned from Ribla to up north again to Babylon in August 605 to receive the crown. 
Then he returned to Palestine. Then he went south and attacked Jerusalem in September 605. So they're going up and down. They were going up and down in both in Palestine and along the, you know, Assyria, Assyria, that whole area there. And they're attacking these different places. Sometimes they would just pass through Israel, depending upon how things were going that week. Or other times they'd go in there and they'd ravage and destroy the place. And meanwhile, God's dealing, because is the apple of his eyes, Israel, he's dealing with his covenant people. It was on this occasion that Daniel and his companions were taken to Babylon as captives. They were a first wave of captives. There's multiple waves going into this captivity over a period of many years. Perhaps Nebuchadnezzar considered them hostages to wonder people in Judah against rebellion, saying, look, I took some of your people, I could take more later. He does take more. Nebuchadnezzar returned to Judah a second time in 597 BC in response to Jehoiakim's rebellion. And a lot of these verses, I recommend you read. Second Chronicles 36 is great. It's, a, it's an encapsulation of the history of this. I, in the past, I've taught it and we've read it. It, it, you could spend days just there. Had to do a rebellion, the prophets rising up early and warning the people, the people blowing them off. A good king, Josiah, he talks about Passover again. He gets to, they discover the word of the Lord and cleaning up the temple, which was in disrepair. The people are repenting, things go well. Josiah dies in battle because he refused to believe that a Pharaoh Nico in Egypt was being spoken to by God. And, and, and Josiah had a different plan, and it killed him. It took out the good king. He died early before his time because he didn't understand what was going on. It's crazy. So I'm going to leave you with this because I'm not ending today. I just say that um, let's go here. We'll start. I'll go halfway t towards the bottom of this green stuff here. From the subjugation, from the first subjugation of Jerusalem in 605 until the Jews returned and rebuilt it, Temple Foundation in 536 was approximately 70 years. From the destruction of the temple in 586 until the temple was rebuilt in 515 was also about 70 years. So Jeremiah's prophecy about the 70-year duration of the Babylon exile was literally fulfilled. Now, there are people who would argue and say that God is uh, prophetically chronospecific, and if about 70 doesn't count as 70. There's other issues in our history and how history is accounted. Sometimes some of the prophets would count from the beginning of someone's reign. Sometimes they, they might have started at the middle of a year, a calendar year, and they called the first full year. He's already been in, on the throne nine months. So a lot of times when people want to argue scripture with you, they'll say, oh, but the, this book says it was this year and that book says it was that year, so the word's not perfect. It's not that the word's not perfect, it's how the prophet accounted because of the culture. We have to read the book with an understanding of the culture. It's some of this dual 70-year calculations that can sometimes create doctrinal camps. Like if you don't know anything, the first person who teaches you about history, biblical history, you think, oh, that, yeah, that's cool. That makes really good sense. And it might make sense until you read the next guy, and then you go, oh, that's cool. That makes really good sense. And you end up being a little bit sophomoric, sort of the wise fool, because you know enough to think you know it all, and you don't. But the more you press in, some of these guys, I mean, there are things that we're not going to know because they're sealed up. I prefer to, I don't want to, I don't want to make believe I know things that I don't know. But at the same time, there's things that we're required to know. It, it sort of puts a tension in your life. But you want to get the gist. Because the bottom line is you want to be surrendered to the God 
who has it perfect. So God's working to get us kingdom ready. So he will test our hearts for stubbornness, for religiosity, or for flexibility, willingness to dig in, which is what we're here for. That's really it. It's not the absolute date of something. One of the things that happens with uh, Nebuchadnezzar is that he co-reigned with his daddy a couple of years. So when they say the first year of the reign, one day I remember I was riding my bike and I used those old iPad, old iPods where you could push back, 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 back without looking at it, you know? And there's some mathematics, there's like historical mathematics in the book of Daniel that sort of stick on each other. I said, no, how could that be in that year of Nebuchadnezzar when this happened in that year of Nebuchadnezzar? What happened in the third year when there's some things that happened in the second year of his reign? I th and, it, and But then you start figuring this stuff out. It makes a little more sense. So don't get wrapped around the axle as far as that timing goes, okay? So I've had opinions. I've had, you know, I, I believe to a degree, if as we're willing to press in, things become clearer. There's other things we just have to leave with the Lord. And just rest in it. Our pastor, many, many years ago, and this guy never, I don't think, taught a day on end times. He said, you already know more than you're doing. <laughs> We do. We know more than we're doing. And it comes down to, here we are, it's Saturday morning. What are we going to do Saturday for Jesus? <laughs> like, what's, where's he going to lead you? What's he, what's he want to do in your life? We are here to wreak havoc with the kingdom of darkness by being holy, by being surrendered. So learning how God speaks and how prophecy, God and how by prophecy God chooses to present prophecy assists us in understanding all scriptural prophecy. This is part of our journey of understanding. How he speaks to us. You get a dream about something, weigh it, in, weigh it relative to scripture. Has God ever, just because God hasn't, I had something happen last night, I had a dream. It was something new. I'm trying to remember what it was. I have it written down. Did I, you write, I did, did you I wrote write it down? I did write it down, yeah. But I remember that, oh, I've never had that image before. In like 50 years of being a believer, probably 35 of them in which I was saying God restored dreams to me because as a little kid I was frightened of dreams. I, as a little Jewish boy who didn't know the Lord, I used to say no nightmares, no dreams, no seeing things. But then I started realizing, oh, wait a minute, it's a whole lot that happened in Scripture in the dream world. And then I said, oh, God restored dreams, and he did. But I'm just saying in all those years something happened last night that I don't understand what the marker was. But I'm not, I'm not pressed. I understand what cars mean, trucks mean. There's a whole bunch of little things he speaks to you and to me. In a, you will have a love language. He wants you to have an intimacy. It's like you're having a name that no one knows except you. Or Jesus has a name that no one knows except him. There's a, he has a love language. There are some things that are, seem to be common in all of our dream state and how God addresses things. But there's other things he's going to reserve for you. I love that. Butterflies. Right? I, I love that. So let's remind ourselves and one another to keep our heads up and keep our eyes on Jesus. That's most critical in this book. In all books, of course. Psalm 121, I will lift my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. This is where prostitution comes in, by the way. Right here. Where comes my help? What do I have to do to get help? And he says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. That's Psalm 24. He's the one who helps you. Thank you for doctors. Thank you for finances. Thank you for paychecks and bonuses and houses that appreciate. My help comes from God. And then later on, 
After the teeny type, verse 7, the Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in, starting now and going forward. But he's saying always. It's always, always. From this time forth and forevermore. Okay, now we're going to read Daniel 1. How do you like that? In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, if you read Chronicles, Second Chronicles, like the last couple of chapters, it's spectacular. There's other places, there's little snippets of it else through scripture, but it's great if you read Chronicles. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave, this is critical, it wasn't like God goes, oh, those bad guys are really big and strong right now and Israel's really weak. This, I, I have to do something later. That's never the storyline. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Shinar was actually the earlier name for Babylonia. If you were serving a false god, and you whooped the people who said, theirs is the God of heaven and earth. Theirs is the God of the Passover deliverance. All the nations feared us as we came out of Egypt and we came along and we took out all these, these wicked nations and ours is the one true God. And then you're saying, well, your one true God just lost to our true God. The testimony of failure was because of the situation of the Jewish disobedience. When we get to further in, the book of Daniel, we're going to see because of transgression, an army is given over to the Antichrist. So we make life tougher by being unholy and unresponsive and disobedient and trying to customize our walk with our God, thinking we'll make it easier. Another interesting thing, and this is not why I'm convinced it's, um, it's Islam and those people around Israel and not a revived uh, Roman Empire, is the fact that the classic enemy of Israel has always been the people of Shinar, from the very beginning to the very end. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, which some of the articles of the house of God. God gave them some of the articles of the house of God. We'll remember those articles when we get to Belshazzar in a couple of weeks, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. He's, this is a worship. This is blasphemous worship. We took the things that you thought were holy and we dedicated them basically to Satan. So Shinar Babylonia was from Nimrod in Genesis 10, in the Tower of Babel, all the way up to Revelation where it talks about how Babylon is falling. And we have this account in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah was written after the book of Daniel. Zechariah is a Ma'ar, he's a young man. Then the angel, in chapter 5, verse 5, then the angel who talked with me came out and said to me, lift your eyes now and see what this is that goes forth. So I asked, what is it? And he said, it is a basket that is going forth. He also said, this is a resemblance throughout the earth. Here is a lead disc lifted up, and this is a, a woman sitting inside the basket. This is a woman sitting inside the basket. Then he said, Basically, this woman represents wickedness. This is wickedness. And he thrust her down into the basket and threw the lead cover over its mouth. It's sort of like that Indiana Jones basket, the big one that they put Karen Allen in and stuck something on top. Basically, she's in there, and this lead disc is on top of the basket so she can't get out. 
It's a representation here. This is wickedness. And he thrust her down into the basket and threw the lead cover over its mouth. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. So I asked the angel who talked with me, where are they carrying the basket? And he said to me, to build a house. To build a house where the basket belongs in the land of Shinar. When it is ready, at the appropriate time, according to the sovereign plans of God, the basket is going to be established in the place of Shinar. What does that tell you about the bad guys? And that's sobering. Now, it's not all presented in one place in Scripture, but I know where it is, and many people know where it is, but it's saying there's a, there's a theme here. There's a consistent theme of the good guys and bad guys. The other nations count. We know that. But there's, there's certain things that just correlate to, to the prophetic word. Back to Daniel chapter 1. Then, some, then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs. Now remember, they get taken there, and they're under the master of the eunuchs. It, it sort of says something to you. They're under the master of the eunuchs. We never hear of Daniel married. We never hear of Daniel's lineage. And they're under the master of the eunuchs. To bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace. This was a smart investment by an evil king. He got it. And whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed to them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank. And three years of training. So for three years, they're going to study. So they can be, they're going to be immersed in the culture. So, I, so he can utilize these smart guys. So at the end of the time, they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, means God is my judge. Hananiah, Yah, God has favored. Anytime you see I-A-H at the end of a name, it means Yahweh. <coughs> Mishael, also E-L at the end of a name, is Elohim, who is, who is what God is, and Azariah, Jehovah, has helped. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, meaning Bel protects his life, sort of like a treasure, to Hananiah, Shadrach, and to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Azar and, and to Azariah, Abednego. So they had names have meanings too. What they're trying to do is they're trying to take them away and wean them off their culture of covenant. There's name changing in scripture, but a lot of times name changing is for someone to try to forget who they are. You have to be really careful here. So even, I mean, even saying sometimes really, sometimes people just whimsically want to change their name. There's no, nothing illegal about it or bogus or anything. Sometimes people have trauma in their life. We know someone who was horrifically abused by someone who used to call them by their name and so they wanted their name simply pronounced a certain way. God bless that person. But I'm just saying sometimes names are taken from people spiritually so they could forget their roots. It's, and but I also want to say, just encouraging you, sometimes asking someone about their name opens up a conversation for the kingdom. What's your name mean? What a great name. That's a strange name. I've never heard that name before. It's spectacular. It's a wonderful name. People often don't even know the profundity of their name. Not even just the meaning, but the, the concept of the name itself. It's powerful. So the plan was to have them forget. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not, so they wanted to give him the goodies. They wanted him to eat well. Verse 5, 
Now the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and of three years of training. So they were going to live well for three years. This isn't prison food. This wasn't cafeteria food. But Daniel purposed and sought that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies. Food wasn't kosher, and they were obedient to the kosher laws back then. That was primary. Nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, This speaks of the culture of murder, Satan's culture of murder. And the culture of murder, you're going to see it throughout the book of Daniel. They're looking, they're jockeying for position, there's political intrigue. Here, he says, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink, for why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head. Off with his head. The whole place, something's wrong. The place is corrupt. It, it represents evil. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had said over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So Daniel basically goes a step down from the chief of the eunuchs. He talks to the guy who's going to basically hand the food to them. Please test your servants for ten days. Let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you, and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. Now people have said, oh, I'm going on a Daniel fast, and this is considered the Daniel fast. It's, it's a veggie fast, basically. No meat, no alcohol. He didn't live this way his whole life. He speaks of a later fast in his life where he says, I didn't eat pleasant foods. But they tell you here, he says, test us for 10 days. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men and as you see fit. So he consented, because that sounded fair with them in this matter, tested them 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate a portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the and wine they were to drink, and gave them vegetables. That's pretty amazing. So he tested them 10 days. After the 10 days, they continued this fast. But by the time you get to 10 2, you'll see he did not eat this way his whole life. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So God is already sparking Daniel. Already. It's revealed to us the first big one is going to be chapter 2, which is referred to as the mother of all prophecy, which will be next week when Nebuchadnezzar, who goes crazy and flies into a rage and starts slaughtering all the wise men, which makes great sense. <laughs> Here he is, he's training people to be his counselors. He goes, let's take everybody who's all the seers, they, they disappoint him. But what happened is God had lit a fuse in Nebuchadnezzar. And I'm going to say something here on this podcast, which is very interesting. People have said when Donald Trump is in office, or he said, oh, he's Cyrus. I think Donald Trump's Nebuchadnezzar. If you're going to compare him to anybody, first of all, Donald Trump is Donald Trump. If yeah. you really want. Everybody's, there's no two, it's like Cabbage Patch. There's no two alike. But the reality is God is dealing very heavily with that man. There's a whole lot of things that God used him for, and there's a whole lot of things God might use him for, but he has to humble himself, and he needs to get radically change it. Pray for him. Pray for these people who have horrible character flaws, but God is using. Understand that. Nebuchadnezzar, he gets so rocked by God with that statue. He gets so rocked by God several times in scripture. He's the only ruler of an empire who writes out a testimony that looks like a salvation testimony. 
So their journeys, all these people that we see, you know, you could hate someone, say, I hate this guy, I hate him, and he's a fool, and he's a buffoon, and, and he's a puppet, and maybe they are right now in their lives, but God is using these people, and he's sovereign, he sets people up. We actually have who we deserve. Look who, look who God put in place in Chronicles. Tell me whether they got what they deserved. But the nation was disobedient. This comes down to us being obedient, us being full of the power of God and spirit of God and raising our families right and running our businesses right and our, and our, and our neighbors getting saved. This is about us being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. This is on us. Don't blame the leaders. They got some massive issues. They're going to answer to God for these issues. But don't blame, pray for him. We called, we're called to pray for the ones in authority. So he took it away, and at the end of the day, he said, look better. Now, then the king interviewed them, and they bring them. Now, at the end of the day, so he brings them, he interviews them among them. None were found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Likely eunuchs, in captivity, stolen out of their land. Their land is under threats. There's going to be further captivities. They're going to basically fill up Babylon with, with the captive Jews for 70 years, and things were not going well, and God says, I got my eye on those four men. I'm going to promote them. I'm going to do great things through their lives. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus, Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus, when he was in his 80s. This guy started great, ended great. This is the man who wrote the book, who lived the book. So far, so good for Daniel and his friends. They're off on a wild adventure, as are we. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the ones who've come before us. Thank you, Holy Spirit. God, that you would choose, Lord, to have us here on earth in these critical days. Lord, you do not put the scrubs in at the end of the game. And every shot counts right now, Lord. And the clock is ticking. And we're going to learn about that clock because you are so good as to, as to give a word to us through the ones before us, God. And we bless you in this. Thank you for salvation. Thank you there's a way out for the people that we think are without hope. Thank you that there's a way out, God. There's a salvation for some of these people who look like buffoons or, or who have just done silly, stupid, heinous things. There's people who get saved in prison. There's people who get saved on their deathbeds. And God, anoint us in these days. We ask you, God, to send a rain in the time of latter rain, that you would pour out your spirit on the ones who know to lift their heads up in these days, God, that you would do great and mighty things through us and for us and to us, God, that we would glorify you. And again, Lord, if this is my word, it would get deleted. God, if this is the word of the Lord, God, it would be cemented in, a, in, our, uh, in our psyches, God, our spiritual psyches, that we would be transformed and we could, uh, we could uh, win souls for you in these days, Jesus. And as your saints unmuted their mics so we could happily say that we're in agreement with the Savior of the world, we say, Amen. 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 So we say yes, so we say yes. So we say yes, so we say yes. Is anybody out there saying yes to God?